know the why human trafficking work is needed to fight for the freedom of modern day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field so that you can cut through the noise, save time, and be about the work of saving lives. Welcome to the nation. This week, we have Carrie Brody, and she's the founder and executive director of Emma's Torch. Emma's Torch is a nonprofit restaurant, cafe, and catering business in Brooklyn that provides culinary training and job placement services to refugees, asylees, and survivors of human trafficking. Emma's Torch was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Greatest Places in the World in 2018 and has been featured in The New Yorker, The Rachel Ray Show, The New York Times, Vogue Magazine, and others. So it's my pleasure. I'm excited to have Carrie, the founder, on today. Good morning, Carrie. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so tell us about Emma's torch, and how did you even get the idea to to do such a thing? I always thought I was going to work in public policy. And so after college, I went and I I started working um, first at the Israeli embassy and then at the human rights campaign. But in my free time, I was volunteering at at a homeless shelter. And I was really struck by how much you can build up somebody's dignity when you're having a conversation around food. It's not just about handing out a muffin, it's about asking somebody about baking at home or what what food means to them. And so I had this truly crazy idea and I would joke to my husband that somebody should start an organization like this and I would love to go work for them. And for better or worse, my husband about four years ago turned to me and said, you know, why not you? Why are you waiting for someone else to do this? And so really the rest is history. I tried to come up with a good enough reason not to try and start this. And in the absence of that, uh, hit the ground running and ended up leaving my job and going to culinary school. And then did you have any business background in how to open a business? I most certainly did not. Um, I Sometimes I have to pinch myself at how fortunate I've been to to meet people who have come along for this journey to meet business owners who were more than well, more than willing to sit down with me and walk me through what a basic PNL is. Um, I think that I've learned a lot through trial and error, but I'm very fortunate that a lot of times it's just been about approaching people with humility and saying, I have this idea, but I need your help. And those helpers and advisors have become really instrumental in, in growing this business to the point where it is today. Wow. So what is a PNL? Because I don't even know. <laughs> a profit and loss statement. Okay. Um, is. <laughs> Good. That's business 101. Um, so why the name Emma's Torch? What's significant about the name? I'm a very big history nerd. And in particular, I love those unsung heroines of history. And I think one of them is Emma Lazarus. She wrote the poem that's on the Statue of Liberty, to give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. And she was one of the first people to take the approach that welcoming in the stranger, giving a platform to the downtrodden, makes us all stronger. And so that type of energy and that type of idea of what it means to be American means to be welcoming was something that I really wanted to carry through in our work. 
So that's why we were named after Emma. Um, but what's really sweet is that we just had a graduate who had his first daughter who was born in the United States and they just named her Emma. So we are both named after Emma and also are carrying on the legacy of Emma's. That's awesome. I, one of my friends in a book that I wrote about my journey as a human trafficking advocate, my best friend as uh, when I was a little girl who got trafficked and then murdered, her name was Emma. And so uh, we have our international human trafficking conference uh, for the past 17 years. And what people don't know is every time they walk up to the registration table each year, there is a sort of silhouette of Emma that is there to welcome everybody. So I did not know that um, the the thing that was done with the Statue of Liberty was connected to an Emma. So that is awesome. So what do you serve at Emma's Torches? Are really good food? The food is quite delicious, which I can say because I am no longer allowed in the kitchen. Um, we're really <laughs> fortunate to have such a talented culinary director who was really at the top of his game in the culinary industry at New York's best restaurants and came over to teach. And so the food is a combination of locally sourced ingredients that are then tied to recipes where our students can learn something. And so we jokingly say it is new American cuisine prepared by new Americans. Oh, that is awesome. So how do you even choose uh, who, how does, what's the process? How does it all work from beginning to end? Does a student look you up or how do you find them? It's a great question. When we were getting started, and when I say we, I really mean when I just had this crazy idea, I was really aware that what the world needs is people who are willing to look for solutions, but not people who say, I know everything. And so I went and I met with leading professionals and caseworkers who work with refugees and survivors of human trafficking. And I asked them to vet the program and to give me real feedback about what is helpful and what isn't. And so those same relationships, which started out as nine organizations and are now over 40, are organizations that refer clients to our program. And so that means that when our students hear about us, it's often from a caseworker or from one of, or from somebody at their shelter or from somebody involved in their, their resettlement process or a lawyer. Um, and then they apply on our website, which is a very basic application, and they come in for an interview. That is awesome. So how long do they work there? Is there a process where they're a student and then an employee? And at what, what time period do they get paid? So our students are employees from the minute they walk in the door. And what that allows us to do is to pay them whether they're sitting in an English class or working in the restaurant. All said and done, the program is about three months long. So between 550 to 600 hours, it's a full-time job, which means that our students are earning a livable wage, they're earning $15 an hour while they're in the program, which just kind of to, to orient people, in the three months of our program, our students earn almost as much as on average our students have earned in the last year. And so that means that they're starting the search for a job from a position of somebody who's actually been paid for three months, who doesn't have a level of same level of desperation and is able to advocate for what, what they really deserve. Oh, wow. That is very cool. I love that idea. Do you ever have to um, retrain and retrain somebody? And do you ever fire people who are end up being incompetent like in any other job or what happens in those cases so we urge our students to make all of the mistakes i think the biggest struggle that we have is when students are so nervous to make mistakes that they won't do things and you know what 
everybody at some point is going to confuse salt and sugar. Everybody at some point is going to spill something on the ground, and it's usually going to be when they don't want to do it. So we take the approach with our students that this is, a, this is truly a place for them to make mistakes, which is why we're a nonprofit. Our bottom line is our students. We have a philosophy internally that we don't drive attrition. And what that means is that, yes, we do skills assessments with our students, but we don't, nobody's ever going to be pushed out of our program for not having a certain level of skills. The only reasons that we've ever parted ways with students have been tied to um, whether or not they're able to show up, if they, if they don't show up for any reason, um, or if there's an, any sort of indication um, that they're not able to abide by our rules that create a safe space. Those have been very few and far between instances, thank goodness, um, and really we're committed to supporting our students. So at the end of those three months, we're 98% of our students were able to find them not just jobs, but the beginnings of careers. Mm, like what kind of jobs do they transition to? Our students end up working at a wide range of places, all within the culinary industry. So that's everything from a production facility for hummus to a three Michelin star restaurant in New York City. It's an exceptionally wide range, which, which is tied to the fact that our students have very different needs and goals. So we have students whose goal is to open a restaurant. And so we might place them at a job with a small, a small business owner so that they can also learn about the basics of business mechanics. Some of our students want to go on to be the next top chef. So we'll prioritize finding them a job with chefs who are, who are widely acclaimed. And some students, what's more important to them is actually the ability to be home at certain hours with their children. So we'll look for a job that has that type of schedule. We're trying to be really, really intentional about what we mean by a good job, because a good job doesn't mean the same thing for everyone. And just like our students are, are all unique individuals, we want to make sure that their jobs fit into what they really need. Yeah. So where do you get the funding to keep um, the restaurant open? We work very hard to find partners who, who will join us on this journey. About 60% of our budget is actually covered by the restaurant revenue and the catering revenue and the library cafe revenue. So we're very fortunate that we have a very stable and, and growing revenue line. But we also really fight to try and find people for whom this mission resonates with them. What's nice is that I can say to donors that your donation is going directly to support our students because that's the part that the revenue from the restaurant doesn't cover. And so we're very lucky to be supported by a number of foundations as well as individuals um, and a couple of corporations as well. And do you do the grant writing yourself? Do you approach these corporations yourself or do you have a management team? Our team is small and scrappy. I'm very lucky. We have a part-time development coordinator who does a tremendous job of helping us get these grants ready, but it really becomes our whole team. You know, when we bring a foundation to come to a site visit, they want to see everyone, and our, our tiny team um, really, really works above their, their pitches above their weight. I don't know. There's a sports metaphor in there somewhere, but uh, our tiny team really pulls together to, to demonstrate what we do and the value that it has, and I think the the biggest advocates for our work are actually our students. So we have, we have a tiny team that really comes together to, to try and to ensure that we have the, the fundraising support to, to reach our goals every year. And so what percentage would you say are grant funded and what percentage of, you, you said 60% is, is funded by the business but another 40% maybe grants and corporations. What percentage of that 40% would you say are grants and 
what percentage are, are corporate funded and anything else? Yeah, the split there is actually fairly even. We look at like probably close to 15% of that, of that 40% is, um, sorry, of that 40%, about 33% are individuals, another third are grants, and another third are corporate um, supporters. Because we have some corporations who support us in terms of cash, and we have other corporations who support us in terms of products that they donate. So for example, our spices are donated. Our chef's knives that we give to each of our students are donated. And so we're very fortunate in that way. That's awesome. And what kind of food, what, what's on the menu? So our menu is, um, it's new American cuisine. And so we have a lot of globally inspired spices or combinations of flavors that permeate through our menus. So we have one of the things we're most known for is our black eyed pea hummus, uh, which is delicious and full of spices and, and really, really a fun one. We also have um, a really nice sea bass and a short rib and just really your typical farm to table cuisine. But it's, everything has a little bit of a twist that reflects more of the countries where our students are from and the, the types of produce that we can really highlight. And you're located in Brooklyn, correct? We are. We are. We have, a, our, we have our restaurant and our cafe are both in Brooklyn. And so what's the address? And when we all come to eat there, what kind of range are we looking at in terms of the price that we'll pay for a dinner? Definitely. So at our cafe, if you want to just come in for a light bite, you can see us at the Brooklyn Public Library, which is the address is 10 Grand Army Plaza. And everything at that location is under $10. Um, if you want to come in for dinner, you can come visit us at 345 Smith Street, which is in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn. You can't miss us. Our mission's on the wall. Um, and that usually for dinner, you're looking, if you want to have a nice dinner with wine and appetizers, you're probably looking at between 40 and $50 a person. Um, but we have plenty of people who come in for happy hour or who come in for brunch uh, and bring their whole families. So we're, we're really grateful for the support of the community. And what percentage of the staff there are people that are from the community that are, um, you know, people who have sought asylum, people who are survivors, is it 100% or what's the percentage of people that you've hired that have those experiences? So we're actually very deliberate in that our students are, are technically speaking employees and they're with us for three months. So if you came into the restaurant tonight, you would have everybody in the kitchen other than our culinary instructor are people in our program. But when they graduate, we actually are pretty deliberate about not hiring our own students because we believe that they can change how so many people think about this population by going out into the broader world. And so we don't want to clip their wings by keeping them, keeping them home with us. We want them to go and really thrive. And so we don't actually, in most cases, we won't actually hire back our students. One exception mm -hmm. is that one of our first graduates um, went off, did an amazing job at his in his career and we recently hired him to be one of our instructors and so we're really we're really proud of him but largely if you come in you'll get to meet our current students and then we're always happy to provide the names of restaurants where other graduates of ours are working that's awesome now do you would you ever consider franchising emma's torch out or doing trainings for people who want to open restaurants across the country Certainly, we still, we get a ton of inquiries from all over the country of organizations asking us to bring this type of work to their communities. They're seeing it as a way to really change the, the community's conception of what it means to be a refugee. 
-hmm. Right now, we're trying to solidify our model. We've only been around for a very short period of time. And our goal is that in the next five years, we'll be able to start doing that type of franchising work. That's awesome. How long have you been open? We opened our Carroll Gardens restaurant uh, under two years ago. Wow. And you have a baby, as I understand. So I how, do. Do you, yeah, how, how do you do all of that? It's a great question. I am very fortunate to have a very supportive husband who's exceptionally helpful on everything and in the parenting front. And then our team has just been so amazing. I will say that something that really has been an amazing part of this journey into becoming a mom is that so many of our students, 70% of them are women and many of them are, are single mothers. And so from the moment I became visibly pregnant to now when sometimes I bring the baby to work, it's really special to, to be in the position to learn from our students more and to see their confidence that telling me things about, about being a mother, about taking care of a baby and to really see them as, as partners in my life as well. I love that you have like a can-do attitude, and I love that you are working on the empowerment end, what we talk about from victim to survivor to thriver, and you are definitely working on that thriver end. Um, so that is just totally awesome. But what is it about the business world that you're in that you can say, I really don't like that part of it? And what is it that you really love that keeps you in the game? We're in a really tough business. And I think that you don't have to look too far to find examples of how not to behave, in particular within the culinary industry. You know, it's an industry that had its own really, really enormous Me Too moments. And a lot of that hasn't changed yet. And so I think that attitude of we can treat people poorly is something that whenever I see it makes me, makes me angry. Um, and I think that there's a lot of inequity within the industry, but I also think that those are the same, those are the same challenges that get me up in the morning because for every time that there's a horrific story of abuse in the kitchen or people not being paid fairly or anything of that nature, there's also people who are pouring out and saying, this isn't who I am. Yes, I'm trying to make my restaurant work on these very slim margins, but I want to use my everything that I can do, my business, my everything to help support your students. And so that gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. And so that is what gets you up in the morning is knowing that there's hope in the world and that you're making a difference, a small part of that difference. That's, that's what does it. That and my baby get me up in the morning. That's right. Yes. <laughs> um, so is there any parting advice that you would give someone who is interested in those entrepreneurial pursuits and that, you know, and social enterprise or empowering other people? Is there any advice that you would give them of what they should avoid and what they should be doing? Sure. I definitely don't have all of the answers, but I think that in terms of avoiding, I think that one thing that I've learned is that you should never try and go it alone. It's always better when you can work with a community. It's always better when you can find those partnerships because when you bring people together, then you get really brilliant ideas and those challenges seem less daunting. And I think that there's really, there's no reason not to get involved. So I think if you're out there and excited to do something in this space, look at what already exists and see if you can engage them or see what it would take to get something off the ground. Um, and I'm always happy to, to take people's calls and to chat with them about my journey too. 
And when you talked about collaboration, collaborating with other people, are you talking about doing like focus groups to get people's opinions about what should take place in the community? Or are you talking about um, having a financial partner that owns part of the business? Like, which, what are you talking about there? So every community is different. What I'm more talking about is if you want to start something, you can't just start it sitting at your computer. You have to go out there and talk to experts. You have to go out there and really ask if you want to serve this community, you need to ask this community, what is it that you need? I think that sometimes we get hung up on thinking we have all the answers, but it really should be about going and, and doing the work and speaking to the people you're trying to serve. So if people want to do this type of work, how do they get in touch with you? And do you ever do presentations or training around the country or, or consultations? Certainly. So first of all, the best way to get in touch with me is to email info at emmastorch.org. And you can find that on our website. And I'm always happy to take people's calls and talk to them. I have gone all over the country at this point to, to give talks and lectures and to speak with different groups. And I'm always excited about those opportunities because in as much as I love speaking to other people and telling them what I've learned, I always find that I'm able to learn, learn something from everybody that I meet. Um, and so that's something that I've I've done in the past as well. And for people that are trying to promote their organization, um, you can speak to this best because you've been in Time Magazine, on Rachel Ray Show, in Vogue Magazine. How did you, how were you able to promote your organization so well like that? This is going to be a very unsatisfying answer because I don't know how this happened. It's all been very organic. And I say this as somebody who actually used to work in communications. And I used to, for a living, write a lot of press releases, which when I started Emma's Torch, I decided I wasn't going to do anymore. So the way that we got so fortunate is that we, I reached out to a couple of reporters when I was just getting started and said, hey, do you want to come check this out? And from there, we got exactly one article. But that one article somehow came across the desk of a couple of people and then slowly those people sent it on to others and so a lot of that press coverage the vogue magazine the new yorker the time magazine were all just word of mouth that spread between reporters with people sharing these articles and then the other thing that was fortunate for us was that we happened to be located in a neighborhood where a lot of reporters lived and went out to eat and so they'd happened to stop by because they saw a place that was packed for brunch and next thing they knew, they're like, oh, this is an interesting story. And so it was a lot about just being open to those opportunities and willing to, willing to put it out there, but not, there wasn't really a clear, you know, we put out this press release and then that's how all these articles happened. A lot of it was really organic. I think that's the way it happens. I mean, the same thing. I've been on the Tamron Hall show and primetime and things like that. And those things just happen because of someone who, sent an email or introduced somebody or a cousin of a friend who works in New York. And, you know, that's how those things really happen. People forget that they're also looking for stories as you're looking to promote your organization. So, you know, I, I would suggest based on what you said for people who want to do that to email uh, different producers, email different shows, write letters, promote yourself, talk about your organization. And that way, you are getting the message out there, just like Emma's torch. And I know that the next time I'm in New York, I am going to find Brooklyn and I'm going to find Emma's torch and I am going to eat and enjoy myself because I'm going to smash. And then I'm going to ask uh, to meet you 
So <laughs> I can't wait. Well, I look forward to having you here. That would be wonderful. Yes. Thank you so, so much, Carrie. Thank you for what you do. I know that you probably aren't making a million dollars yet, but I hope you will. Um, and I hope there will be possibly franchises all across the nation because I think people would choose to eat at a place that they know they're getting great food, a great value, and they are also helping to empower their community. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think that would be awesome. And I would even pay a little extra money to eat at a place like that. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for what you do and continue to teach people that have struggled and come into this country that we are a welcoming country, that we are a welcoming community, and that you can have the American dream here by first starting out like meeting people like you and working in places like you have. So thank you so much. Any parting words that you want to share? No, I'm just so grateful for, for you reaching out and for, for having this amazing platform to, to connect people who really have this shared mission of making the world a better place. So thank you for including me, and I look forward to hosting you here in Brooklyn. Richard Branson, the billionaire, said, Some entrepreneurs think, how can I make a lot of money? But there's a better way to think. How can I make people's lives a lot better? If you get it right, the money will come. We have to remember that it's not who you are that holds you back. It's who you think you are that holds you back. So what are those dreams that you have, like deep down in the crevices of your soul and in your heart? What is it that you know you want to do, but you're just afraid to do it? Maybe you haven't seen it done before. Well, Carrie hadn't seen this done before, but she struck out, did it. And it's a success and she's helping lots and lots of people find their own path the same way she's found hers. So what is it that you dream of doing to make a difference, whether it's in the anti-trafficking field or in social justice in general? Let's bring those dreams out, dust them off and start really seriously considering them. Let's not just do something. Let's do the best thing. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe and I'll send you the weekly podcast. Until then, the fight continues.